0: Thank you, and um, it's so good, thank you so much, to be with you all. I have known uh, your pastor, Brian, for over 20 years, and I have got some good stories that are inappropriate for me to share from the church stage. Um, but I got to tell you, and I think that you probably know this, knowing Brian now for a little over a year, he is one of the most genuine people that you will ever meet. And what a gift he is to be uh, for you to have as your pastor. And so I'm so grateful for this church, getting to have Brian as your pastor. And and I actually knew Cam as well. Cam took one of my classes at Hope International University, and, um, and he was a great student and really was. I'm not just saying that because he's sitting in the front row, I'll say it when and he's not sitting in the front row as well. But I discovered recently that I actually have another long-term connection with this church. My brother-in-law, my wife's brother, he went to the University of Hawaii, and he graduated from there and then went on from the University of Hawaii to take a, a staff position with YWAM, which is Youth with a Mission. It's a youth missions organization, and he was here on this island. And during that time in the 90s, uh, this was his church home for quite a while. And so, uh, so we've had a long relationship with our family. And I'm so grateful to this church to taking such good care of him and loving him well while he was here. Now, um, we are going to wrap up this series called Christmas Unboxed. We spent the last several weeks kind of unpacking some of the Christmas story and trying to understand what does it mean for us and what does it mean for us today. And so if you have a Bible on you, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. If you want to follow along in your phones, you can do that as well. And we'll have everything up on the screen. And so you'll be able to follow along there if you don't have a Bible on you. Now, before we get to Matthew, though, Have you ever been on a journey that didn't go the way that you expected it to go? This past summer, my family and I, we were taking a road trip. We try to do a road trip somewhere every year, and we were driving from Southern California to Colorado. And on the way, we were going to take a detour, and the detour was to Arches National Park in Utah. It was a bit out of the way. It was about an hour out of the way, and it was a 12-hour drive for us to get there. But the reason that I wanted to go there and the reason that we would detour an hour out of our way, drive 12 hours straight one day to get to Arches National Park because there was one hike we wanted to do. It's called Delicate Arch. If you've ever seen any pictures of Arches National Park, you've seen a picture of this arch. It's beautiful and fantastic. And the only way that you get to see it, you can't drive to it. You can't take a tour bus to it. The only way you get to see it is that you have to walk to it. And so I was building this up. I had 12 hours to build this up with my family to tell them how great the hike was going to be. And I told them it's unlike any other hike that we've ever done. There's not a typical trail. Instead, it's this huge rock face that we're going to walk over. And I was telling them about what the view is like and telling them the only reason you get to like see it is because you walked there. You did this thing to get there. And so we drive 12 hours. We show up about an hour before sunset. It's still about 100 degrees outside. We get our hiking boots on, we lace them up, and we begin on the hike. And what I failed to tell them over those 12 hours of building up how great this hike is, telling them people from all over the world, fly in to do this hike. What I failed to tell them is how strenuous and hard the hike was going to be. I failed to tell them that the first uh, half mile is a 500-foot incline, which is pretty steep. We did Diamond Head this morning, and when you start hitting the stairs of Diamond Head, it was a bit like that for half a mile. I didn't tell them that. I didn't tell them about the three-foot-wide ledge that we were going to have to walk across that was a rock face on one side and a sheer drop-off to your death on the other side. I didn't tell them about any of that. I just told them about how great it would be when we saw the arch And so in the 100-degree weather, about an hour before sunset, as we are about halfway up that first rock face, making our way up, I stop in the midst of, like, sweating and being hot to take a selfie with my wife. And here's the the picture that we took as we were enjoying that hike. Now, um, to get a better perspective, if we could zoom out of that just a little bit. That's my son Isaac there. Now... In fairness to him, he didn't know that he was in this picture. And so when we intentionally took a picture together, here is that photo. (laughs) He was not having it. (laughs) He was not pleased to be on that hike. And just so you know, I'm not a horrible parent. My son gave me permission to show this. He thinks that it's funny. But it was not turning out the way that he had hoped it would turn out. It got incredibly difficult And have you ever gotten to those points? Have you ever been on a journey? Have you ever been doing something where it gets incredibly difficult and you have to decide what you're going to do? Are you going to take the easy way out? It's in that moment. It's in these kinds of moments where you want to bail. It's in these kinds of moments where you want to turn down and you want to, like, find your way down. It's in those kinds of moments that you want to find an escalator that will take you to the top of the hill. It's in these moments that you want to find the easiest way out when it's difficult. And how many times, how many times have you faced those kinds of moments in your life. It's like you, you've had this time where you work at this company and you love the company, you love your job, but you've discovered that your boss has been mismanaging funds. And so you're going to go and you're going to confront him and then you're going to tell his supervisor. And as you go to confront him and you've worked up the nerves to do it, all of a sudden you start playing in your head all the potential scenarios of what could happen to you. It, it's like, oh, what if he fires me? for confronting him? What if he sort of sidelines me? What if I get demoted? What if I don't get to be in on these meetings anymore? And he start playing out, well, what are the potential ramifications that could happen to me? And he starts second guessing this courageous thing that you are going to do because of the difficulties that could be involved. <laughs> uh, or or maybe, maybe what will happen is in a few months, we're gonna have to do our taxes, which is our favorite time of the year that happens after New Year's. And what happens at tax time is maybe for some of us, because of how our finances work, there are are things that are easy for us not to report. There are things that are easy for us to sort of like hedge around in what we put on there. And we're the only ones that would know that. And we have to make this decision that would affect our finances, that would affect our finances for our family. And maybe it's not like totally ethically wrong, but it's also not totally ethically right. And I have to decide like, what am I going to do in those moments? Or maybe there's been some sort of relational rift that's happened, a family member, a friend, a neighbor, and you know that you need to apologize. It might not even be all your fault. It never is. It's never 100% anybody's fault. I mean, maybe it's even only like 20% your fault, but you know that you need to own that 20%. You need to apologize for that piece of it. And it's incredibly difficult to do. Is there anything more humbling than going to somebody and saying, I was wrong and I'm sorry? Not, I'm sorry, but you did this too. No, no, no. just like how hard is it? To say I was wrong and I'm sorry. How difficult is that? What if, what if, what if you've been living in fear and anxiety over things that you can't control? And it's incredibly difficult not to live in fear and anxiety over that. And you can sing songs about God being in control and God being good and God being a God of abundance who can provide all things. But then when the rubber meets the road and in the reality of life, what happens instead is I try to grab a hold of control because that's the easy thing to do. That's the easy way out. And it's much more difficult to live with a posture that says God is a God of abundance, who is a good God, who wants good things for me and that he's going to provide for me. And so why do I worry about tomorrow? Because tomorrow have enough worries of its own. That's an incredibly difficult way to live. And so we take the easy way out. How often are we taking the easy way out? And so in our jobs and in our relationships and in our families, things aren't always going the way that we expected. And we hit these moments, we hit these crosswords where they get difficult. And we have to make decisions of, will I do the hard thing or will I take the easy way out? And this is This is some of the story of what happens in that first Christmas. Some of the key figures of the first Christmas story have to face that same sort of decision. These figures, we call them the magi, or sometimes they're called the wise men. And really what they are is they're pagan astrologers. The reason that they follow the star is because in their paganness, they grab from all kinds of different religions and they grab things that have to do with the stars and the sky. And so they have grabbed a hold of the part of Jewish prophecy that would talk about the stars and they grabbed a hold of that part and they began to follow that part. And it's actually appropriate that we share the story of the Magi after Christmas because they're actually not a part of the first Christmas. But we sometimes mix it up and think that they are. Our nativities uh, show them as a part of the first Christmas. Uh, we've got a nativity collection in our home. It's one of the things that we do whenever we travel around the world that we pick up a nativity scene from that place in the world. And they're, they're all unique because they take on that Culture, and, and so we've got ones from Peru. We actually have one from here, from Hawaii. We we've got them from. Uh, I've got it from uh, uh, Cuba. That was one of the hardest ones to find, actually, in a communist country. We've got it from Haiti. I've got one from that was made by hand by Palestinian Christians in Bethlehem. It's one of my favorite pieces, made out of olive wood. It's beautiful. I have one from China that we got when we walked into Costco. And so we've got them, that's not as funny as it is in some other places. Now, we've got them all over, but almost all of them have the wise men in it. And so we often get confused. We think the wise men were a part of that first Christmas, but they actually weren't. They come later in the story. They come maybe a year, maybe two years later in the story. And so it's appropriate that we talk about them after Christmas. And here's how their story begins. It's Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Now, the language that, magi using, that the magi are using here is incredibly significant, and we need to pay attention to it. It's not at all accidental, the title that they used for Jesus. Because they could refer to Jesus in all kinds of different ways. They could have said, where is the one who's been born the Messiah? Where's the one who's been born the Savior? Where's the one who's been born the Lord? These are all the titles that the angels use when they announce the birth of Jesus to the shepherds in the field. They could have used any of those, but instead they say something else. They say instead, where is the one who's been born the King of the Jews? And that's significant because the Jews already have a king, and his name is Herod. The Herod, though, is generally hated by the Jewish people. He was a half-Jewish king whose loyalties were more with the Roman Empire than they were with the Jewish people who he was governing. And so they, they hated him so much that the Jews were actually known to be praying for his death at times. And so Herod was incredibly paranoid about his position. He was incredibly paranoid about losing power. He's incredibly paranoid about insurgencies and uprisings coming up against him. And in fact, he wouldn't trust anyone because he believed that everyone in some sort of way was out to get him and was trying to remove him from power. And so at one point, he actually becomes so paranoid that even his family is after him that he has his sons killed so that they can't claim his throne from him. And so Caesar is quoted as saying at one point, Caesar says, it is better to be a pig in Herod's household than it is to be one of his sons. He ran this police state where there were loyalty oaths and surveillance and informers and secret police. And when anyone was found dissenting to his leadership, they were imprisoned or retaliated against and beaten at times. In fact, just before his death, Herod knew what people thought of him. And so he actually knew, he knew that people would be dancing and celebrating in the streets when he died. And he knew that no one would mourn his death, but he wanted to make sure that there was mourning at the time of his death. And so he issued a decree before he died that said that when he died, distinguished men from every village in the country should be locked up in the hippodrome and slaughtered so that, and here's what the decree says, so that all of Judea and every household will weep for me, whether they will or not. He forces people to do and say what he wants them to do and say. He gets them to do what he wants through manipulation, through coercion, through fear, through intimidation. So Herod was declared king of the Jews. He knew very well. What they thought of him. He understood his approval ratings and he dealt with it. He dealt with it through manipulation and fear and coercion. And so it's no wonder that when these magi come looking for a baby who's been born king of the Jews, it's no wonder that here's what Matthew tells us is Herod's reaction. Verse three, it says this that when Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. He was disturbed. Why was Herod so disturbed? Because there is another who's being called king of the Jews. Because the Magi are headed out to worship this infant and not Herod. As you can imagine the wheels that begin turning in this king who's already paranoid of losing his position, who will do anything to maintain his power. And so he comes up with a bit of a plan and we don't know his full plan yet, but we can begin to get like glimpses maybe of it. Verse seven, if you skip down a little bit, it says, then Herod calls the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He's trying to figure out how old is this child? He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. He says all the right words, doesn't he? But anyone who knows him, anyone knows about him, they clearly know that there's other intentions. They might not know exactly what he's going to end up doing, but they know that he's not going to do the right thing. They know that he can't be trusted In fact, what we know that he ends up doing is he has all the boys who are two years old and younger. He has them slaughtered, a mass genocide of all the infant boys in the countryside. And so what he's asking these magi to do is he's asking them to out the child who's been born king of the Jew, to give up the location of the child who's been born king of the Jews. And so many of you know the story. You know that when they follow the star, it leads them to the home of Mary and Joseph, where they would encounter the child Jesus. And what Matthew says is that when they see the star that would lead them in the right direction, it says that they were overjoyed that there is something within them. Because when you find and follow what's leading you in the right direction, it does something to you. It's like the psalmist who talks about being led on paths of righteousness, that it does something to you. You delight yourself in the Lord. There's something significant, about being led on the right path, about going in the right direction. Despite the treacherous journey, regardless of their interactions with this manipulative and paranoid king, regardless of what might happen to them, regardless of all that's unknown, regardless of all the hardship in the midst of it, because they're headed in the right direction. They're overjoyed. There is this deep-rooted satisfaction when you do the right thing, when you head in the Direction, even when it costs you, even when it's difficult, even when it disrupts what you are going to do, what you thought would happen, the way you thought it should work out. Will I do the thing that is good and right and true? Because Jesus is always at the other end of that. And so, will I follow that path? Will I go in that direction? In fact, Jesus actually teaches as much. He says that something actually will happen. In you, when you do what is good and right and true. In John 15, here's what he would say He says, If you keep my commands, if you follow my way of life, if you do what is good and right and true, if you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. And He says, I have told you this. The reason that I have told you to do what's good and right and true, the reason that I've told you to go down the right path, the reason that I've told you to follow that star, the reason that I've told you to keep going in the right direction and to keep doing the right thing, even when it's difficult and even when it's hard. The reason that I told you those things is so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete that when you follow the path of what is good and right and true it does something in you and you actually instinctively intuitively already know this because you've experienced those kinds of times haven't you you've experienced those times where you have done the right thing Regardless, regardless of what it might cost you, you've had those moments where you have chosen the right path even when it was difficult and you knew it wasn't the easy way and it did something in you, didn't it? And that's the kind of decision that the magi have to make. There's this insecure tyrant king who told them to go back and report the location of this infant. And if they don't do that, if they don't follow his orders, they don't know what the consequences are. And so they have a decision to make. Verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, They return to their country by another route. Now, I don't know about you, but I had always, growing up, stopped with this story when the magi deliver the gifts and they worship Jesus. And it's powerful and significant for these pagan astrologers to have done that. But that's not where their story ends. Their journey doesn't end when they get to Jesus and worship him. It doesn't stop there. They now have to decide if they'll disobey a direct command from the king. If they will disobey what's essentially become law for them, their civil law for them. Well, they disobey what the king has told them to do by not going back to tell him where this child is. There's something bold and courageous in their decision. In fact, by them deciding to do this, it actually infuriates Herod. Here's what it says in verse 16. It says that when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. They chose to do what was right, even though it could possibly cost them. Even though they didn't know what the consequences would be for them. And it does something in you when you do what's right, regardless You can stand a little bit taller. You can look at yourself in the mirror. You can be confident in front of your children. Jesus says that his way of life, the way that he calls us to, doing what is good and true and right, that it produces something in you, that you experience joy. You experience joy being made complete. It's why when they saw the star and they followed it, they were overjoyed because you've done what's right regardless. And Jesus is always at the other end of that. And I wonder, I wonder for you, where are you facing a difficult decision where you, you actually know the good, right, and true thing to do? But, but maybe you've been holding back a bit. Maybe you've been holding it back because you don't know what all the consequences will be. You're afraid of disrupting a system. You're afraid of upsetting a person. You're afraid of losing out financially. But if you're honest, it's actually been a bit hard to sleep at night. It's been causing some anxiety inside of you. You have this like unsettledness deep within your gut every time you think about it. And the reason that you have that, the reason that you're having a hard time sleeping, the reason that it's like churning inside of you, the reason that there's this anxiety about it is because you're missing joy being made complete in you because you're stopping short of pursuing the path that leads you in the right direction. This morning, we were hiking Diamond Head, and there were signs all over that we saw that, that said this. They said, Shortcuts cause erosion. It might be quicker, it might be easier, but that doesn't mean that it's actually better. Now, I have this friend, his name's Steve, and, and every night, Steve, when he puts his son to bed, he, he asks his son one question He says, Hey, buddy, did you live with integrity today? And his son will answer, and then his son will ask him back. He'll say, Dad, Dad, did you live with integrity today? Uh, This friend of mine, Steve, he ends up becoming the lead teaching pastor of one of the largest churches in the country. One of the most influential churches in the world, like it was a big deal in like in my sector, in the church world and church leadership. It would be like in another sector, it would be literally like him becoming CEO of Apple computers, like that big of a deal, that influential. People would have killed to be in the position that he was in, regularly preaching on a weekend to 30,000 people, influencing thousands of churches worldwide, invitations to be a part of all kinds of things, being flown on private jets to meet with CEOs and executives of some of the countries largest and most influential countries, leading Bible studies for NFL teams, personal counselor to professional athletes, in so many ways he had it made. And as he got into this role, stories began to emerge about his predecessor, the previous pastor, who was actually the founder of the church that he was a part of, who's an incredibly well-known Christian leader. Stories began to emerge about this person's abuse of power and authority. Stories of unwanted sexual advances with female staff. Stories of a long-term affair that he had had with a woman in the church. Stories of an affair he had had with his one-time assistant. And as these stories came out and began to be made public, my friend began to meet with the accusers, the women and others who were accusing this man. Other people who were in the know he began to meet with because he wanted to know what's true, what's actually going on here. And what the leadership wanted to do, what the board wanted to do is they essentially said, like, we want to dismiss the stories, we want to move on. That's our past. Let's move into the future. The more that we engage in that, the more we'll have to get embroiled in that. And we just need to sort of bury that. And my friend said, no, 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 like, truth is supposed to come to light. Churches can't live in darkness. Churches have to live in light. We have to bring the truth to light. We have to deal with this. We have to have a reckoning about this. Like, there has to be repentance. Like, otherwise, like, it affects our church because churches aren't just like a company that can move on there's a soul to the church and our soul is in a dirty and damaging place and we have to deal with that and so he he was trying to move those things forward and one night at an elders meeting he got up the courage he got up the nerve to speak out boldly about this confronting the board with what he now knew to be true with the ways that they were missing it the ways that they were keeping things uh kept in darkness and confronting them with what he believed was the right way to proceed, the good, true, right way to move forward. And they had this long, contentious meeting. It goes late into the night. My friend comes home, and he's a bit dejected because they're not going to move in that way. And he sits on the couch, and it's late, late at night. Everybody's gone to bed, and he's decompressing. And he hears these footsteps behind him. And he turns around, and it's his son. And his son comes out from the bedroom late at night, And he just simply says to his dad, he says, Dad, did you live with integrity today? And my friend, he said, it was the first time that my son had ever asked me that question unprompted. I always had to ask it to him. It was the first time he ever asked it unprompted. And he said, had I not done what I did that night, had I not spoke up for truth, I would have either had to lie to my son or would have had to say, no, buddy, I didn't have integrity today. But instead, I was able to look him in the eyes and I was able to say, I think so, bud. And so as my friend had to wrestle with what's the right thing, what is good and right and true here, what does integrity look like here, he unsuccessfully tried and tried and tried to get the leadership to be more honest with the church about what was going on, about what they knew and bringing things to the light. And he realized, I can't any longer stand up in front of the church and pretend like all this isn't going on. I can't any longer just parrot the party-line talking points. I can't dismiss this and sweep it under the rug and just kind of move forward and pretend like it didn't happen and just push it in the past, and so you realize the only thing that I can do to maintain my integrity now is to resign, which he does, leaving behind all the accolades that came with the position, leaving behind a really good, steady salary with no next job lined up leaving behind the role that he had worked so hard for and built towards for so many years, leaving all that behind. But what he held on to was his integrity. And what he held on to was being able to sleep at night. What he held on to is being able to look at his son when his son asked him, did you live with integrity today, dad? And being able to say, yeah, I did, buddy. And so I'm going to ask the band to make their way back up to the stage and And as they do, I just want to ask you this, that that where is it for you in your journey? Are you hitting those difficult, unexpected moments where you need to do what's right regardless? And maybe, maybe even it's been eating you up. Maybe even it's been causing you anxiety. Maybe even it's been causing you some sleepless nights. But when you pursue the right path, when you do what is good, right, and true, it might not make everything easier. Things might still be difficult around you. You might not know what the outcome will be. It might actually make things harder for you. But your joy will be made complete. It will do something deeper deeper and richer in you. Would you pray with me? And so, God, we are grateful for your goodness towards us. We are grateful for what we have been celebrating, the gift of Jesus, of God coming close, of Emmanuel who came to be with us. And so, God, would you help us to be men and women who pursue those paths of righteousness. Would you help us to be women and men who do what's right regardless, who pursue what is good and right and true? And God, as we do that, would our joy be made complete? May we experience that deep down in our bones at a guttural level. God, I don't know what those places are for the women and men who are in this room right now. But God, I pray that you would stir in us, stir in our imagination, stir in our minds what those spaces are, and give us the conviction to pursue you, to pursue what is good and right regardless. And I pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.